And now, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Amos chapter 1. We are working through the Minor Prophets, and a long time ago, in a land far away, in the week before Palm Sunday, we finished the book of Joel. And as we move through the rest of the Minor Prophets, we are reminded of some certain things. Uh, these men write over the period of about 500 years. They are called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less important than the Major Prophets, but because they're shorter than books like uh, uh, Ezekiel, then then Isaiah and Jeremiah. So minor refers to their length, not their content. And even though they write to different people at different times over a huge time period, uh, we find some reoccurring themes that come up and so often that we put them on the banners behind us. But we see the sovereignty of God highlighted in every one of these books that God is in omnipotent, sovereign control over all of his creation. Whether that is locusts or invading armies, God is in control of all of it. There is no accident. There is no oversight. There is no misstep in his plan. God absolutely oversees all things. And second of all, that God is holy. And when we talk about the holiness of God, remember, yes, God is holy in that he is upright and morally pure and perfect in the way that we usually think about holiness. But holiness also refers to God's separation, God's distinction, uh, God's otherness. God alone is worthy of the worship, not only of his people, but of all nations and all peoples. God is holy and he demands and deserves right worship and an approach to him. And we also saw that God is just. As people fail to respond rightly to God's holiness, justice comes against sin. The sins of the nations, and as we've seen particularly in the Minor Prophets, and as we will see again pointedly today uh, on his own people. Because God is holy, he must deal rightly and completely with sin. And yet God is merciful the God of holiness and justice, and even judgment, right judgment, is merciful. He provides a way of restoration, of rescue. If people will return and repent, if they will humble themselves, if they will acknowledge their failure and respond to him in humility, then God promises restoration where repentance has happened not because people deserve it. In particular, not because Israel deserves it. Not because they're better. Not because they're genetically of the right code there, but because God is merciful and God is faithful. God will maintain every covenant promise he has made to his people. And so as we open up the Minor Prophets, it's this beautiful kind of tapestry that all have distinct patterns and major themes and emphasis, but they all weave together in a really beautiful way. And so today, uh, we get to open up the next of the Minor Prophets, and we'll open up the book of Hosea. And if you remember in Joel, Joel writes very, very early to the people of the south, and Joel talks about the day of the Lord. And what Amos is going to do is Amos is going to pick up some of those same themes and he's going to move them now and talk to the northern kingdom. And we'll see that clearly as we go through today. So Amos chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to set us up for where we're going as we cover the first two chapters today. Amos 1 verse 1, this is what God says through his prophet. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said... The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Let's pray. 
Lord, once again, we open up uh, your prophetic word, words given through your spirit to your people. And Lord, although we know they speak to the time and the place of Amos, to his original audience, it warns of specific sins and judgment that is to come. Uh, Lord, you have left these things for us, for our reminder, for our understanding. You have challenged us with these words so that we too might respond in obedience rather than rebellion. So Lord, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would open up our eyes. Open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, a portion of your word that we might not be as familiar with. Lord, we need your help to see. We might understand the words, we might read the grammar, but Lord, to have spiritual insight and understanding is a work of the Spirit, not of our intellect. So even in studying your word, we come to you humble and in need. So Lord, come alongside us and help us to see, to hear, to understand and to respond in worship and obedience. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you and I are made in God's image. We hear that all the way back in Genesis, that man and woman alone, out of all of creation, are made in the image of God. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? One of the things that it means, and it's not a comprehensive statement, but one of the things it means is that we are able to reflect God's image, that we are able to be like him in some ways. And when we talk about what makes God God, we talk about his attributes, his characteristics, those things that define him. And in theology, we talk about things called communicable attributes, shareable attributes, those attributes or aspects of God's character and person that you and I are called to reflect or mirror in a limited way. Uh, one of those things is love. We say that God is love. And when we talk about God being love, God is the perfection of love. Always and at all times, God is the perfect fullness completion of absolute love. And yet you and I are called to love. We are called to love God and to love others. And we can't do that perfectly, but we are called to share in that attribute of God and to pursue God-like love toward him and toward others. Another one of those communicable attributes is one of those things on the banner behind us, and that is, that is justice. God is just, and he has placed in the human heart the capacity and even the desire for justice. You and I are naturally drawn toward the righting of wrongs, at least as it's perceived from our perspective. We are often very, very eager to see justice done, either when the situation is kind of outside of our personal realm or when it impacts me. I want justice for those things that were done against me. Now, if I flip that around and I'm the one who's wrong, usually what do I want? Not justice, but mercy, which is appropriate, but we're often able to trade one for the other and justify it in our minds. But the question then becomes, if we are called to pursue justice, and we are, what happens when God's people pervert or ignore justice? Well, one of the major components, not only of the book of Amos as a whole, but particularly of these first two chapters that we're going to look at today, is that God's people had justice skewed. They had thoughts about judgment, particularly as it related to the other, but they were not so willing to entertain ideas of justice that might come on them. So what we're going to do is we're going to open up chapter 1 and 2 today. And first, we're going to very briefly look at the introduction. We're going to look at the shepherd who wrote it. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time going through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that talk about the sentence that God pronounces on the injustice and on the failure of people to rightly respond to him. So just like we did when we opened up Hosea and Joel, we're going to look at Amos, and we're going to first start by asking the question, who wrote it? 
And very helpfully, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So right away we hear that the words, these prophecies, these oracles are given to a man named Amos, and we know something about his occupation. He's called a shepherd of Tekoa. In chapter 7, verse 14, he says that he's not a prophet, he's not a son of a prophet, he's a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. This is not a government official, this is not a temple official, this is not a priest and not a Levite, this is not someone in any official or high-ranking capacity, this is a man of humble means and a humble background. And he's from a place called Tekoa, and as the map comes up there on the next slide, that should start to look very familiar to you by now. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Remember, after the death of Solomon, David's son, the kingdom is divided. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, separate capitals, different worship sites, different kings, different lines of kings. Same people, but torn apart. And Tekoa is here, about 10 miles south and slightly east of Jerusalem. It's a dry and it's an arid place. And uh, if you are a shepherd, and a dresser of figs, it's hard work to get water to your flocks and water to your figs in this place. So this is a man who has a humble background, which is going to contrast greatly with some of the ease and prosperity that we're talking about. And although Tekoa is there in the southern kingdom, you see that it's there in Judah, we might anticipate then that his work as a prophet is directed toward the people of Judah, but it's actually not. He does speak to the nations. He does speak to Judah specifically, and we'll see that today. But the vast majority of what Amos is going to write is directed at the northern kingdom. In fact, when we come to chapter 7, a man named Amaziah in Bethel says, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat your bread there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and a temple of the kingdom. Basically, he says, listen, southerner, we don't need you up here. Go back home and do your work there. But Amos is primarily directing his prophecy toward that northern kingdom. When we understand the who and kind of the where, then we have to ask the question, when? When is it that Amos writes? Remember back in Joel, we had so little historical information. It made it one of the most difficult parts of the book to really nail down is when Joel wrote. Uh, Amos gives us some very helpful details. Look at the rest of verse 1. He's among the shepherds of Tekoa. The things that he saw concerning Israel, the northern kingdom, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake or before the great earthquake. Now, historically, we really can't pinpoint exactly when that earthquake happened, although it was certainly known not only by Amos, but by the generations that followed him. But those two kings that he lists are very, very helpful. Uzziah, a king in the south, uh, he ruled for almost 50 years. And Jeroboam, a king in the north, not Jeroboam the first that ruled over the first part, but Jeroboam the second, one of his uh, descendants. And Jeroboam also ruled for a long time, from about 785, 786 to 746 BC. So again, 40 years. And so when we plug Amos in and we kind of account for the cultural drift that had happened, it's likely that Amos writes about 770 to 760 BC. And in your bulletins, you should have that prophetic timeline that we laid out for the 12th, so you can kind of see where they line up. So you'll see that Amos writes about 70 years after Joel, and he writes 10 to 15 years before Hosea begins his prophetic ministry. So Amos and Hosea are going to overlap in the northern kingdom there. And 
not only do we have to understand kind of the, the specific time that he wrote, I want us to understand something about the kind of time that he wrote to. We know that the northern and the southern kingdoms would go through periods of uh, restoration and disaster, uh, that in the north you had no good kings, wicked king after wicked king that led to trouble after trouble. In the south, you would have good kings followed by bad kings, and it would kind of go uh, from God's blessing and protection to back to God's discipline. Uh, at this particular time, what you have is both the northern and southern kingdom living in relative peace and prosperity. Uzziah is one of the good kings, and God blesses and protects the southern kingdom. And in the north, even though Jeroboam is not a good guy, he is not a good king, other kind of political events around him allowed Israel to be strong. Just to the north of Israel, sorry, go back one slide, entirely my fault. Yeah, just to the north there, you're going to see uh, Damascus and Phoenicia, and the kingdom of Syria was just to the north there. Well, Syria was kind of a constant threat to the north. But just before Jeroboam comes in and rules, Assyria comes in and knocks out Syria, and then Assyria regresses. So you have two neighbors that are weak in the north that allows uh, the northern kingdom to come and to take territory that they hadn't really had since the time of Solomon. And so the northern people that Amos writes to are experiencing peace and prosperity and a sense of well-being that they hadn't for a long, long time. And that's the culture that Amos writes to, a culture that is at ease that is living in relative freedom and significant prosperity. And that brings us to the why. Why does Amos write to these people at this time? We know that he's going to hit these four major themes because all the minor prophets do. But Amos highlights a few things in a particular way. And the first one of those is God's holiness, the person, the nature, the power of God. Amos is going to make it very clear that although Israel is in covenant relationship with God, the nations that don't know God are still under his sovereign control. That they too are accountable to worship the God of Israel, whether they know about him or not, whether they like him or not, whether they acknowledge him or not, whether they have their own gods or not. God alone is sovereign over all of the nation. And Israel in particular is going to fail to respond rightly to that holiness of God. They have the clearest picture of what God is like. They have a history with God. They have the law that reveals what God is like. And Israel fails in particular and in drastic fashion, even though they know who God is and have been called to respond to him. They are no better. The second kind of major theme that he picks up on is the day of the Lord. The one that Joel introduced, Amos is now going to take and give further clarity to, particularly as we come to chapter 5, the day of the Lord is not just going to be a, a theoretical time of judgment. Amos is going to apply it to God's people themselves. He's going to condemn them for desiring that day, desiring judgment on others, without realizing that the day of the Lord is a time of sifting not only for the nations, but for God's people. And finally, there's a particular emphasis in the book of Amos on the poor and the needy on the idea that one of the expressions of a people's fallenness and rebellion is their oppression of those in need. Rather than see their prosperity as a way to love others and serve their neighbors, they saw their prosperity as a reward for them and something to enrich them, even at the expense of and on the backs of the poor. And God has a significant amount to say about those who are abused, neglected, 
and seen as the other and the outcast. So those themes are going to provide some clear parallels for you and I as we work through this in our time, in our place, thousands of years after this was written. And so as we move from the introduction to the bulk of chapter 1 and 2, I know that it seems like we have more to cover than time to cover it. Uh, You have to understand that as we go through these judgments that he's going to pronounce, we're not going to get into the absolute minutia of every one because that's not the point. What Amos is going to do is lay out a series of judgments on the nations in a way that lead to a significant point being made at the end of the verses that we're going to cover today. So let's open this up, and we're going to move from the shepherd and his introduction onto the sentence that God pronounces against sin. As we open up verse 2, we're going to see that God begins his judgment with the others. God is going to pronounce judgment on those who were other, who were outside of his covenant relationship with Israel. And look at verse 2 there. And he said, the Lord, Yahweh, roars from Zion. That's where we get the name of this sermon series as a whole. As we go through Amos, that's the theme. Yahweh roars. You and I think of God as a lion. We sing songs about God being a lion as a picture of his strength and his majesty, and and it's a comfort to us. And, And that's appropriate, but you have to understand that in this context, Yahweh roaring is not good news. There is going to be a clarity about who God is. And when you have clarity about who God is, and you are living outside of covenant faithfulness to Him, that is not a comforting reality. That is a terrifying reality. God is not the cuddly, stuffed lion that you can approach however you want. He is not the gentle, big kitty cat that you can wrap your arms around and do what you will with. God is sovereign And God is terrifying in his majestic power. Like a lion that consumes the prey before him, Yahweh roars, and the Lord is going to utter his voice from Jerusalem, from Zion. He might speak to the nations that are far flung and out to the ends of the earth, but God can speak from Zion, and his voice is heard through all the nations. He might have his presence directly there in the center of his people, but he is nonetheless the God of all the nations, and God will speak from his appointed place. Even Israel, who has set up their own places of worship, is reminded, even in this very opening verse, that God has appointed his place from his temple in his city, Zion in Jerusalem. That is where he will speak to his people from. That is where he will exercise his authority from. That is where his people are to approach him in worship. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord will speak from Zion, but the judgment of Yahweh is going to be heard and felt for quite a ways. And then in verse 3, he's going to open with a formula that's going to be repeated over and over. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And before we get into the specifics and the geography, I want to make sure we understand that formula there. What Amos is not saying is he is not saying that Damascus has only done three or four things wrong. In fact, as we go through these, you're going to see that God only really indicts all these nations for one particular sin and offense. In each one of these charges, he says three to four, and here's the one. 
The idea is not that there's only three or four a limited number. The idea of for three transgressions and for four is kind of a Hebraic way of saying for repeated multiplied transgressions. For the over and over and over non-stopping sin of these people, I will not revoke the punishment. And one of the most critical things that we're going to see as Amos repeats that over and over and over is the way that this progresses geographically. Uh, this is important. It drives home Amos's point. So the next slide up there is going to be a map that we're going to leave up as we go through the rest of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, Damascus is right here. You'll see it on the slide. That is the capital city of Syria or the uh, kingdom of Aram Damascus, and it is just to the north of Israel. Syria repeatedly fought against Israel. They often claimed large parts of that territory that was in the northern part of their kingdom. They were a constant threat and a constant foe. Even though at this particular historical time, they were weakened, they were constantly taking advantage of and at enmity with God's people there. And so he says, for three transgressions of Damascus, which was the capital, the important chief city of uh, Assyria, and for four... I will not revoke the punishment. And what have they done? It says they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. At some point, they had waged war, apparently, in a particularly brutal and cruel way. A threshing sledge is a flat surface, boards that are bound together and weighted down, and then you would drag them across the top of the grain. And uh, the pressure and the crushing would separate the wheat from the chaff, and then you would winnow it away, and the worthless would be blown off, and you would have what had value there. And so what they have done, it's pictured like a threshing sledge with iron teeth, something that grinds down into powder the people. It is a picture of crushing oppression and particular cruelty. And for that cruelty, God says, He will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. God is going to send the fire of judgment. That is a picture of fire and judgment on the rulers of Syria. He's going to break the defenses, the bars of the gates of Damascus. He's going to leave them open and defenseless. He's going to cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter at Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile in Kerr. And so what God says is that these people who have been a constant threat to God's people, these people of particular wickedness and cruelty and brutality are themselves going to come to judgment and the people of Damascus are going to go into exile. Now, Israel hears this. How do you think Israel responds? Good. They deserve it. They've been a thorn in our side for a long time. How dare they encroach on the land that God gave us? How dare they exercise such cruelty? Amen. Preach it, Amos. And Amos goes on. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Gaza is here. South and to the west of Israel. Gaza is the chief city of the Philistines, and that probably sounds familiar. They are an ancient enemy of Israel from back before David, but particularly in his uh, encounters with the Philistines, a constant nuisance, a constant threat to God's people. When they failed to kick them out of the land, the Philistines were there like a cancer ready to invade at any time of weakness into the land of God's people. And so Gaza is that chief city or one of the chief cities of the Philistines. And what's their crime? It says they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. 
They didn't just take military victory and conquer and take the men who had lost in battle as slaves. No, it says they took away whole communities. Men, women, children, not fighters, but civilians, not the powerful, but the weak. And they sold whole communities into slavery and Edom. So what will God do? He will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. Once again, fire is used as that image of judgment. And then he mentions three other cities. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, from him who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Those are the three other significant cities, and along with Gath, those five cities made up what we call the Philistine Pentapolis, or five critical cities. So God is pronouncing judgment on that whole nation and the whole people. What does he say? He says, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Now, that's interesting. This idea of a remnant is something that is going to be important in the minor prophets. And as we read through the minor prophets, what we see is that God is going to preserve a remnant of his people, even through judgment. But what does God say about these wicked people who are not under covenant faithfulness to him? There is no redemption. There's no redemption promised for these who are outside of God's covenant with them. It's a serious and a strong uh, contrast there. And so Israel hears that. And what do you think Israel would say? Good. They deserve it. From the times of our father David, they've been like a cancer in our land. Lord, expel them and give them exactly what way they deserve. Amen. Preach it, Amos. And so Amos goes on. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Tyre is here, to the north and to the west. Now you'll notice we're a little bit closer than Damascus. Tyre on the border of the Mediterranean there. It's the most significant city among the Phoenician people. It's a significant seaport and trade city. And the people of Israel had a long history with Tyre. And what is Tyre's crime? Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, very similar to the Philistines. But look at what he adds. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Not only did they sell people into slavery, they did it in violation of a covenant, of an agreement of peace that was between the people. This might refer to the peace that was made between Solomon and Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, over a hundred years before this. There had been good relations with the people of Israel. This might refer to a violation of that. But whatever it is, the people of Tyre had broken fellowship for the purpose of enriching themselves. They had broken covenant promises. And so what's going to happen? God will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Once again, the fire of judgment is coming. There's nobody who can stop it. There's no sense where you can strengthen yourself to avoid God's justice. It is coming. It is sure. And it is final. And what would Israel say? Good. They deserve it. How dare they break a covenant promise that they had made? Bring your justice, God. Amen, Amos. And Amos goes on. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Edom is here, a desert kingdom to the southeast of Israel. And what's their crime? Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. What's he talking about? Well, Edom is another name for Esau, Jacob's twin brother. 
You see, the people of Israel and the people of Edom had family ties that went back to the beginning. They were linked genetically. In fact, God had commanded His people Israel not to hate the Edomites because they were called their brothers. But the wickedness of Edom is so great that when we get to Obadiah, we're going to see that Obadiah's whole prophecy is directed toward Edom. At some point, rather than take pity on their distant cousins of Israel during their time of crisis, they participated and enriched themselves in their destruction. It's a a heinous betrayal of family connection. And so what's going to happen? It says, God will send fire upon Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Again, a picture of fire and judgment on the chief cities, the most important cities of the Edomite people, and a promise of God's judgment on a wicked nation. And what would Israel say? Good. Who are they to turn their backs on their brothers in their time of need? Who would enrich themselves at the desperate plight of someone else? Amen. God, bring your judgment. And Amos goes on. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Ammon is here. It's to the east of Israel across the Jordan River. It's just south of Syria, and their sin is disturbing. It's because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead so that they might enlarge their border. Gilead was a part of the land across the Jordan that was given to Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And at some point in the many conflicts that the Ammonites had there, it appears that they not only came to conquer, but they came to destroy the next generation, ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and killing the unborn children, destroying those who were the most helpless. Why? So that they could enlarge their border. Cold-blooded murder of those who are the most vulnerable. And so what's going to happen? God says, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their kings shall go into exile, he and his princes together. God is going to cut off the major city. He's going to cut off their leaders, and they will, as a whole, go into exile. And another nation is judged. And what does Israel say? Good. Good. What did they do? How could they do that to the most desperate and the most helpless? Who would murder the innocent for their own gain? And Amos goes on. Chapter 2, verse 1. For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Moab is here, just south of Ammon, if you look there. Long history of conflict between the Moabites and God's people all the way back from the days of the Exodus, the hiring of a particular prophet, Balaam, to curse God's people, not allowing them to pass through the land, corruption with their women and the children of Israel, a long history and a difficult history. But that's not the particular failure that God mentions. God says, what did they do here? He says, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, we don't know what that specific act is. We don't know what that specific king is. But at some point, the people of Moab desecrated the remains of the king of Edom. And that one sounds a little weird to us. Because who cares what wicked nations do to the bones of the kings of other wicked nations, right? 
Well, well, the answer is that God does. He's going to send a fire upon Moab. Judgment again. They'll devour the strongholds of Kiriot, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of a trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill its princes within him. God cares about how they treated other nations. See, none of these people are under the covenant obligation of Israel that God made to them at Sinai. None of these people live under the law. None of these people are in fellowship with God, but that does not preclude God's right to judge them in their sin. Every sin that they commit might not be committed under the law, but every sin that they commit is committed toward the holy God who formed them, made them, and established them in their kingdom and in their power. Whether they acknowledge him as God or not, whether they recognize his authority or not, God is the God of the nations. And what does Israel say? Good. Look at our history with them. Nothing but trouble, nothing but difficulty, no obedience, no response to God. Good. Lord, judge them. And boy, when you look at that map, what do you notice? Israel on every side, surrounded by judgment from northeast to southwest, from northwest to southeast, and then filling in the gaps so that there is this concentric circle bounding Israel in on every side, and Israel rejoices. You might also notice that there's not many places left to go. And Amos goes on. And as Amos goes on, now he's not going to talk about judgment toward the other. Now he's going to talk about judgment for their brothers, those who dwell in Judah, Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now we are right at Israel's doorstep. The covenant people of God, capital city of Jerusalem, are now condemned. And what do they do? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Judah is condemned specifically because they have failed to keep the law of God. The other nations condemned for crimes against humanity. Common knowledge, common understanding, simply being made in the image of God. They knew that those things were wrong. They did them anyway. They violated God's standard in sin. Judah fails specifically. Judah doesn't fail in ignorance. Judah doesn't fail broadly. Judah fails specifically in that they do not keep the law of God. They violate their covenant promises of worship and obedience, and there are lies that lead them astray. And most likely, that is referring to the idea of the idolatry that they continue to follow after, the lies, the false gods that the people continually pursued in rejection and rebellion from father to father to father to father, uh, generation to generation. So what's God going to do? So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. God does not ignore sin, even the sins of his covenant people, even if they live in his city designated for his worship, where his presence would dwell among them. Sin does not go undealt with. And what would Israel say? Israel would most likely say, good. There's no love lost between the northern and the kingdom and the southern kingdom. Continual hostility, even between their brothers. But Israel sees Judah as being worthy of God's judgment, just like the nations. And so judgment, even this close to home, would have very, very likely been welcomed. And at this point, Israel has to think that God is done that Amos is now out of words because where else can you go? 
The surrounding nations have been dealt with, even Judah, right up to their very southern borders. Even their brothers, children of Abraham like them, have been condemned to judgment. But Amos goes on. And what you have to see is that Amos now drives home the point that he has been building since the beginning of chapter 1. You who rejoiced in the judgment of others. You who have seen God's justice carried out in the nations. You who would understand that God's justice is even carried out on his city, Jerusalem, Israel. You are no better. And God will now judge Israel. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And that one would have landed hard. What is their crime? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They treat the righteous, not necessarily the right, but those who seem to have right standing under the law. And rather than give them justice, they sell them for silver. The needy, the for a pair of sandals, not even for great riches. They treat the poor as if they're no value. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside from the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. See, Israel would have condemned the nations for taking people into slavery. Women, children, the defenseless. Israel would have condemned the nations for ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and murdering the helpless at the very same time that Israel was crushing those who were the most helpless among them, enriching themselves off the poor among them. And just in case they thought that wasn't that big of a deal, God puts it in the same breath as the man and his father going into the same girl. Their greed and their corruption are just as vile as their physical lust. And Israel's condemnation goes on. Amos goes on. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine of those who have been fined. What does that mean? Well, clothing is important. Particularly if you are poor and in need, your clothing overnight might be the difference between life and death. And for that reason, under the law, if you took a cloak, an outer garment as a pledge, a promise to pay something back, If somebody gave you their cloak and said, I'll pay this back and then I can get my cloak back, you weren't allowed to keep it overnight. Under the law, you had to return that to the person who had given it in pledge. They're not only not returning it, they're sleeping on it. With the implication being that they are immorally sleeping on this. In the presence of altars, pagan altars, while they're drinking the wine that people had paid in fines, enriching themselves off the penalty of others, it's really this despicable picture of abuse and neglect. And it's even more despicable and disgusting because they should have known better, because they had a history with God. Look at verse 9. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed the fruit above and the roots beneath. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. Look back. Israel, you have a particular redemptive history with me. I brought you out of a nation that was stronger than you, led you through the wilderness where you should have died, and moved you into a nation full of people which were stronger than you and set you in that land because I can and because I promised them. Everything Israel had was from God. 
They owned nothing on their own. Their history is a history of God's gracious, generous provision for them, and they used that provision to enrich themselves, to commit vile acts, and to oppress others. Not only that, he says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets, some of your young men for Nazarites. Prophets speak for God. Nazarites are those who have made these special vows and commitments to the Lord. But what do they do? Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, which would have violated their vow. And you command the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. You shut up every means of grace that I give you as a people. You condemn those who are following the law. You shut those up who would tell you of your failures, who would speak on my behalf. So what's going to happen? In a word, justice. Behold, I will press you down in your place like a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight will perish from the swift, and the strong will not retain his strength. The mighty will not save his life. He who handles the bow will not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty will flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. The most comprehensive outline of failure is followed by the most comprehensive statement of justice. Israel, you are not better than the nations. In fact, you are worse. Israel, you deserve more condemnation and more judgment because you should have known. You had every opportunity to respond rightly, every opportunity to turn and repent, and you continually and constantly pursue disobedience and rebellion. They assume that their relationship, that their history to God would allow them to move through their life without accountability. And the people of Israel forget that God is holy and that in His holiness, sin must be dealt with a lot for two chapters. And in those two chapters, we see things that should bring us comfort and correction. In one sense, they're a great comfort because God knows and God sees. It is comforting to know that God does not allow wickedness or oppression to go undealt with. That you and I, in our limited human capacity, do not have to cry out for vengeance. We don't have to seek our own justice Because we know that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. That he hears every cry, that he sees every wrong, and that in the end he will right what is wrong. But there's also a significant correction there. A sober warning. Because as Paul says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. Going to temple bringing the sacrifices, coming to church, serving in church, putting on a good face in public does not mean that God ignores or has passed over sin. God is holy, and sin is serious. And judgment begins with his people and not with the other. So what are we supposed to do with this? Three things. First of all, We should be reminded of the power of God. He is the God of the nations, not the God of Israel alone. He is perfectly holy. He is absolutely sovereign. And mankind is accountable. And that gives our gospel proclamation both hope and urgency. That God is the God of the nations and that he can turn the hearts of even the most wicked, even the most vile, even the most rebellious back to him. 
And it means that those people just outside of these doors, our friends and our neighbors, our families and our coworkers, need the same gospel, the same message of God's person, His holiness, His hatred of sin, and the only salvation available through Jesus Christ. That gospel message is necessary because God is the God, the one and only. Second, Amos is going to continually remind us of the plight of the poor. In our day, the poor have been turned into a political talking point. They're a pawn to be moved from side to side, depending on what argument you're trying to make. Amos reminds us that God takes care for the needy seriously. It is absolutely true. There is accountability that is required. Paul says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. But at the same time, God does not give us our resources for ourselves. We are quick to dismiss the needs of those who are less than in our culture. Sometimes in the name of the pursuit of capitalism. Sometimes with pride and arrogance that says if somebody just worked like I did, surely they would have all that I do. Sometimes out of selfishness that says I'm not going to share what I have because it's for my needs first. We would do well to remember that love for our neighbor will cost us something and that it ought to be directed at those who are in need. Love for the vulnerable. Care for the unborn, for the weak, for the widow, for the orphan. It's not a character trait of the law. That's a character trait of God's people every generation. And last, the path of rebellion. Sin does not suddenly burst into our lives one day. Whether it's a nation or an individual, grand failure does not happen overnight. It's a slow progress, small compromise that opens the door to further temptation and further failure. In times of ease and peace, more often than not, leave us more vulnerable rather than less. The rich, those at ease, you and I, are in danger of forgetting our desperate need for God. Tough times have a way of driving you to the foot of the cross, driving you back to the throne for provision. And when we forget that need, we become very vulnerable to fall into the same pattern of sin and rebellion that Israel did. Let's pray. Lord, we're no better than Israel. As individuals and as people, we're fallen, we're failed. We've taken your provision and we've used it for selfish ways. We've taken your peace and we've demanded ease. We've taken your worship and we've made it our own. Lord, convict us of those small compromises that we make in your goodness. Show us our sins so that we might put it to death with the help of your spirit. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, keep us helpless and dependent on you. Lord, and in your goodness, we know that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That although we are not what we are called to be, one day we will be conformed to the image of the Son, the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. God, we long for that day. Amen.